Welcome to the Stop Animatics Podcast with your hosts, Donnie and Rob. We're here to help you thrive in a world of big data and complex analytics. Hi, this is Donnie, and welcome to the Stop Animethics podcast. This is our second episode devoted to the conversation about masking during the COVID-19 pandemic. Last week, we talked a little bit about a meme uh, that Rob had found that continues to show up from place to place that really highlights some of the confusion and some of the questions and some of the data that's being thrown around in support of various positions uh, within the COVID-19 response. And so we're going to continue that conversation today. We're going to talk a lot more about masking and social distancing. Uh, We're going to start the conversation today. Rob's going to reread the meme just to make sure everybody's on the same page. And then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the various forms of evidence that we can generate through the scientific process and how that evidence relates to the quality of the findings, as well as the ability to assume causal inference And then we'll spend some time talking about what evidence is there that mask and social distancing actually work. So we look forward to the conversation. We really appreciate you joining us today. Set back, relax, and enjoy the episode. All right, Rob, welcome back to the podcast. We're excited to have you again here today. Um, last week, we talked about a meme, and the meme uh, regarded mask and social distancing and some of the um, different beliefs and perspectives on that. And so why don't we go ahead and, you know, out of all the millions of memes that we could have picked, why don't you go ahead and read this one, and we'll talk a little bit about why this one is so important. Oh, well, there are millions, but I found one that I think might be appropriate. So it's just a meme. There are no pictures, but the meme, it just has a bunch of words. I, I'll read it to you now. It says, think. If the masks work, why the six feet? If the six feet work, why the masks? If both work, why the lockdown? If all three work, why the vaccine? If the vaccine is safe, why the no liability clause? Rob, thanks for uh, reading the meme again. Um, It's such a powerful meme because it explores so many different concepts um, in the context of analytics and decision-making and science. Uh, last week, we talked about, uh, you know, this resonates with people. There's a reason why they're passing this around. Um, there's a multitude of reasons. And one of the fundamental one, fundamental reasons people pass this around may just simply believe they, they don't believe that masking actually works. And so last week, we talked about um, what does it mean for an intervention to work? Uh, and at its core, it means that the intervention reduces probabilities. It doesn't mean it's 100% effective. There are very few interventions in the world of medicine or social science or um, physical science that are 100% effective, but we look for interventions that reduce probabilities of an outcome. In addition, if you combine imperfect interventions, each of which has an impact on your probability, for example, of getting COVID, um, you can get the net benefit of all those. And so when um, you know, we talk about doing multiple things in order to lower your probability of getting the disease, 
it's a beautiful thing because what it means is you're able to take uh, uh, you're able to get the benefit of multiple interventions that are imperfect in order to create a course of interventions that have a much higher impact on your probability of getting the disease. Um, secondly, we talked about the notion that there was some changing messaging um, that went on in terms of whether masks were important in the United States or not. Uh, some of that is certainly contextual factors. So the level of spread of the disease um, changes what you would advise in terms of masking, as well as whether there's asymptomatic spread would change your um, evidence and your sort of guidance on whether people should actually wear a mask. And so we talked that we need to to sort of have that flexibility, right? We want science not to be stubborn. You don't want stubborn science, right? You don't want science that's not willing to change its mind based on new evidence. You want the recommendations and the things that people are saying we should do to be updated with the most recent high-quality information that's available. And so unfortunately, as human beings, uh, we don't like messages that change. And so as we hear those kinds of changing messages, it tends to um, cause us to discount um, the message that's currently out there. And so there's this tension that exists that from a scientific perspective, you want to be able to update based on the most recently available information. From a human standpoint, our desire is to have consistency, uh, you know, across recommendations for any particular kind of intervention. But in reality, we want um, science to be able to update on the, the best available information. And it does turn out there's asymptomatic spread. And so in that case, uh, masks become uh, much more important. Now, that's not to minimize some of the issues around messaging. Uh, to you know, It's not to minimize that um, you know, folks should not uh, withhold information if they believe uh, giving that information will create a run on N95 masks that prevents frontline workers from getting the masks they need. They should just tell the public that is my uh, personal opinion. So there was lots of opportunities in terms of the messaging, uh, but there are some real rational reasons as to why um, that messaging would change and why it doesn't necessarily mean that we should discount um, the current advice uh, based on what we should do in terms of masking. So this week, we're going to turn our attention to um, the actual specific evidence that masking does or does not work. And before we get into that, we're going to talk a little bit about scientific um, data, scientific studies, and uh, the different kinds of studies and why each one of them has a different level of quality and why we shouldn't look to any single study, but we should look to the preponderance of the evidence to inform how we make our choices and decisions around these kinds of interventions. All right, Rob. So as we begin the conversation about evidence, I think we need to talk a little bit about what are we trying to do with scientific evidence in the space of medical interventions and health interventions. And so I think we just need to think about the the notion of causality, right? So ultimately what we're trying to do is we are trying to find um, causal relationships. We want to do things, A, that will create some outcome, B. And so as simple as that sounds, that's actually a very difficult process. We want to be able to prescribe interventions that are going to create the outcome that we are actually trying to create. And the challenge is, is that um, when you see a mathematical relationship, it does not always mean that there's a causal relationship. Actually, a fair amount of the time, it means that there isn't a causal relationship. And so people are probably familiar with this notion of correlation does not equal causation. And, and so what does that mean? Well, the easiest way I can think to explain that is uh, to think about ice cream sales and uh, murder. 
Um, so if you look at murder rates in places like New York, Chicago, um, what you'll find is there's a strong mathematical correlation between uh, crime rates, uh, particularly murder, and ice cream sales. And so if I was a politician, uh, I might search out and see that evidence and say, I want to run an evidence-based campaign. I want to do the things and create the policies that are going to actually work. And so I look at the evidence and I say, you know what? There's a correlation between ice cream sales and murder. So uh, I'm going to run on a platform of reducing murder by reducing ice cream sales. Now, the question is, will that work? If I reduce ice cream sales, will that reduce murder? No, though these days I'm sure you could get some people to believe anything. But no, I don't think that would work. Right. So that's a classic case of correlation does not equal causation, right? There, there's a third variable. In this case, uh, people's patterns of behavior are such that they get together more, kids are out of school, a bunch of things that actually facilitate additional levels of crime are actually happening during the summer, which also happens to be the time when ice cream sales are going up. And so <clears throat> in that particular case, we wouldn't want to run on a platform of you know, getting rid of all the ice cream stores and ice cream sales in order to reduce crime. A, because it wouldn't work, and then B, because we would actually, you know, harm people's utility. We would, you know, take away sort of sort of enjoyment uh, from their lives. So we wouldn't want to do that. And so the question is, how do we avoid those kinds of situations? And that's where this notion of different kinds of evidence or different qualities of evidence actually come in. Um, when you think about uh, proving causality, one of the things you have to do is you have to isolate a particular uh, thing, A, let's say it's wearing a mask or social distancing or taking a medicine, you have to isolate that thing and control everything else, meaning hold everything else constant and see whether actually utilizing that intervention changes the outcome. And so you have to control everything else. And so that's why uh, the gold standard when it comes to medical uh, interventions is actually something called a randomized controlled experiment. And that is basically where you divide you know, subjects into two different populations. Uh, one set of the, the subjects gets a uh, placebo, and the other set actually gets a uh, intervention, whatever it happens to be. And uh, then you go back and you compare, and you say, okay, the folks that actually got the intervention compared to those that did not, do they actually uh, fare better? Do they have, if it's an outcome that's positive, do they have more of that outcome? If it's an outcome that's negative, do they have less of that outcome? And so what you're trying to do is, you're trying to isolate the specific thing that you're interested in understanding the causal relationship for and see what the effect of just that thing actually is. Now, even inside that, you have issues, issues with things like placebo effect, right? So the folks that actually uh, get a medicine, whether it actually works or not, sometimes you'll actually see that uh, that intervention causes people to fare better. And, uh, you know, people think a lot of times that uh, the placebo effect is some kind of negative thing. Um, and I'd be curious, like, like, how would you think about the placebo effect? Do you think about it as a negative thing? I think that the knee-jerk reaction is this negative thing because you're thinking, well, you're, you were really given nothing or what you're giving doesn't really work. So you, you, would, think, uh, you would think negative right off the bat. Right. And ultimately, it's, it's not necessarily negative or positive. It's, it just is, right? So people respond. There's a, a link between the mind and the body that we don't fully understand. But you have to control for that effect. You have to make sure that's not happening, which is why most of the time when you do a randomized controlled experiment, you also do uh, what's called either blinded or double blinded where the folks uh, getting the medicine don't know if they're getting the medicine or not. And even the people giving the medicine don't know which people are getting placebo and which people are getting the medicine just so the effect of the placebo um, is controlled for. So you're isolating that effect. It can't be that people are 
getting better because they know they're getting the medicine or getting better because they know they're the people giving them somehow signal they're actually getting the medicine. And these these are really strong effects. And so you have to control for all those things. It is inherently difficult to keep, create a randomized controlled experiment. But um, we do want to do as much as possible randomized controlled experiments. That is the gold standard uh, in terms of individual studies. Now, down from the gold standard, there are things like observational studies that include large groups of people, uh, some of who received a treatment, some of whom didn't, um, but it may not have been controlled. There are case studies where you may have small groups of people or individuals. Um, and then obviously we have our own personal um, anecdotal evidence. And so uh, that's basically a spectrum of the quality of evidence. The anecdotal evidence in our own lives, we're not controlling for anything. Uh, we're not isolating a particular intervention. And so, uh, you know, most of the time uh, we struggle to attribute, if we feel better, what actually caused it. Uh, you know, in the context of our lives. If you think about observational studies, uh, you may actually have some people got a treatment, some people didn't. But if you didn't control for other factors, including endogeneity, which is just inherent differences in the people who did and did not get the treatment, then you can end up coming to erroneous results. Like in the early hydroxychloroquine studies, there was some evidence that maybe hydroxychloroquine worked. Uh, the issue was a lot of that data, the people who uh, took hydroxychloroquine were those people who were actively seeking treatment. They're with doctors that are actively giving treatments. And so it turned out a lot of those folks actually got steroids as well as uh, they got hydroxychloroquine. And uh, it's probably uh, the the situation where a lot of the impact was actually due to the steroids, not hydroxychloroquine. And so in that scenario, we did have gold standard data, though. We did have randomized controlled experiments. And so you're actually able to go out um, and you actually are able to see that in that situation, once you control for those other factors, it really didn't have uh, any kind of impact on the outcome. So uh, bottom line is we have different kinds of evidence that have different levels of quality. Um, the other thing that uh, we should actually say, though, is that sometimes it's very difficult to do randomized controlled experiments, especially at the level in which you care, right? And so um, sometimes uh, in medicine, you can do controlled experiments at the cellular level. Uh, maybe you can do it at the person level, but it's really hard to do it at the community level, right? So if you think about masking, for example, how would you do a randomized controlled experiment? Would you put uh, a one group of people in a um, a biodome and then cover that biodome and sort of put a certain amount of uh, a virus in there and just watch what happens versus another one where they don't have uh, any of the virus or a smaller amount of the virus? Like, it's really difficult to imagine how you would actually pull off a randomized controlled experiment at the population level. Um, and sometimes there's eth ethical issues. And so uh, when you think about a lot of these interventions around uh, this virus or any other virus, like you, you don't really want to expose people to a virus intentionally that may end up uh, resulting in their death. And then uh, you also don't want to get people treatments that have, may have really harsh side effects um, you know, before people have actually done other kinds of tests on animals and, you know, all those other kinds of things. So uh, a lot of times it is difficult to do randomized controlled experiments. And so uh, in a lot of scenarios, the only evidence we have, instead of being the gold standard, let's call it the silver standard. A lot of times what we have is we have, uh, you know, different situations where there are um, observational studies we can do based on what people have actually done historically and try to figure out what that evidence is telling us about how that intervention actually works. Okay. So not randomized and controlled, but the best we can do, right? Right. And, you know, it's 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 a desire to get the randomized controlled evidence, but just in some situations you can't. So you have to interpret the other evidence that you actually have. And 
sort of figure out what the preponderance of that evidence actually says. Now, the other thing I should say is <clears throat> not only is there a different quality of evidence, um, but because there's this natural phenomenon called uh, sampling error, which is, means you have random variation from study to study, even if they are well-designed, uh, what you really want is you want an entire body of evidence. You want to be able to look at multiple studies that repeat, that find the same kind of outcome, that find the same evidence for there actually being a causal relationship. So not only do you want the gold standard, and if you don't have the gold standard, you kind of move to the silver standard, but uh, you want to have a lot of those studies that replicate and all point to the same outcome. Wow, that that sounds like a lot to do in in the middle of a of a pandemic. You know, one that was just thrust on us. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be one of the biggest challenges? Is like now we have to do all these things and re, you know ha, have high quality tests and be able to repeat them in in while people are dying. Yeah, that certainly is uh, one of the biggest challenges. And you know, a few other things that creates in terms of challenges is because um, you have this pandemic. Obviously, like you said, you, you can't. You can't really wait for all the right evidence to come in before you start making recommendations and decisions. Um, but the other thing it creates is people are just sort of on top of every single thing that gets done. And so people aren't used to interpreting this kind of information. People aren't used to the idea that there's sampling error. So you get some studies that say one thing and another, and you have to rely on the preponderance of the evidence. They're getting exposure to every single one of these studies that comes out. And these studies get pulled out. They get propagated forward. Uh, sometimes they get misinterpreted. Uh, people create little narratives at the top for referencing a study that are incorrect. Um, but there's so much focus on every little thing that comes out that I think for a lot of folks, it feels kind of confusing and it feels wishy-washy that, you know, things are coming through the process and they're seeing it and they're paying attention to it. And so not only do we not have a time uh, to actually accumulate the kind of evidence we would love to have, but people are picking apart every single little piece of evidence. Um and then there's this other little thing that goes on psychologically, which is uh, an unfortunate – so sometimes it's a fortunate thing, right? So like our experiences can be our guide in life. But we tend to overweight our personal experiences because of sort of this theoretical proximity to us, um, and we tend to underweight things that are uh, more distant from us. And so when we do have high-quality randomized controlled experiments that are done by people that we have no relationship with or no interaction with directly, we tend to underweight that. And we tend to overweight the person who we knew who took hydroxychloroquine and recovered or uh, the person that wore a mask but still got the disease or the person who didn't wear the mask and didn't get the disease. And so you're going to have those situations, right? We talked about you're reducing probabilities. You're not 100% perfect. But we tend to overweight those examples and underweight uh, what's going on in terms of the people that are more distant from us. And so um, not only does a pandemic create a situation where you have to make recommendations and decisions earlier, it creates a situation where as you learn more things, your guidance may change. Because there's so much focus, it means that people are reading every single little thing that comes out. And because people in their psychological processes that we go through, we tend to overweight the things that are close to us, the thing we see on social media from our friend, the person that we talked to who did something and some outcome got created. And we tend to underweight the evidence which has the highest level of quality. So um, all that said, let's uh, turn our attention to talking about what is the evidence that masking and social distancing actually works. All right. Well, let's take a look at the evidence for mask wearing. And so um, as we talked about, there are different kinds of evidence. There's some that is uh, anecdotal. 
uh, which means it's not a randomized controlled experiment. There's some which is personally anecdotal. People have certain experiences. Um, but there have been lots of studies in this space generally talking about respiratory viruses. And so instead of talking about any specific uh, study or article, um, we have to talk about the preponderance of evidence. How does it all fit together? And I want to focus on a review that was done in The Lancet, which actually tried to look at both the evidence for social distancing and the evidence for uh, wearing a face mask. And so they looked at a ton of studies. So they looked at 172 observational studies across 16 countries, um, 44 relative comparative studies, healthcare, non-healthcare settings, uh, 25,697 patients, as well as a bunch of other people. So all in all, this is a study. When you think about a meta-analysis, a meta-analysis is just a study that looks at all the relationships that have been found in the other uh, studies that have been done and tries to accumulate those and sort of say, okay, what is the preponderance of the evidence? Because again, any one study is subject to sampling error. But when you have a broad base of studies and you look at them in aggregate, you can get a better sense of what's actually going on. And so the conclusion of the Lancet study is uh, twofold. Number one, uh, that social distancing actually works, that at three meters, you see a really substantial decrease in the probability of spreading the disease from one person to the other. It doesn't go completely away because you have to you have to realize like you have different kinds of filtration and air movement systems in different places, but it dramatically reduces it. So um, when you're looking at a meter, it's uh, three feet. And so it basically says that you get a dramatic reduction there and you get an even bigger reduction if you look at two meters, which is uh, a little over six feet. And so in the accumulation of all the studies that have been done, there's significant evidence that says um, that you get a reduction at both three feet and an even bigger reduction at six feet. They also found that both eye protection and masking had significant impacts on the probability of spreading the disease. And so they looked at a bunch of different studies. Um, some of those are small randomized controlled experiments. Some of those are broader observational studies. Um, but they looked at all those and they came to a conclusion that says not only does the evidence support that social distancing actually works, uh, but the evidence supports that masking actually works. And this is, across, again, across a lot of different contexts, even in the context of flu. So a lot of people think that masking doesn't work for the flu. Uh, there's one study in Australia where they found that uh, people wearing masks in the household with other people that had the flu basically eliminated the uh, transmission of the disease. And so um, I'm not going to attribute uh, what's going on right now to this specifically, but if you look at North Carolina, for example, last year there were 100, I think, 86 deaths from the flu uh, by this time this year. Um, and then this year there have only been five. So that's a 97% reduction in flu deaths. And, um, you know, it's probably some combination of social distancing and masking and all the other things that folks are doing. Um, but there's a ton of evidence that says masking works. And Lancet, which is the premier peer-reviewed uh, journal about medicine, um, has a bunch of people, it's Chu et al., who went out and looked at all this evidence, wrapped it up, did meta-analysis and a review of it, and found that both masking and social distancing, and even, for that matter, wearing protective eye gear, actually does reduce the probability of the disease being transmitted. Um, and there have been other studies that have looked at this, and they all come to the same conclusion. The preponderance of the evidence, both at the individual level, so when you think about person-to-person -person spread, as well as the population level, when you think about the percentage of people wearing masks in a group going up, that reduces the spread. And so as individuals, if we wear a mask, and as a group, if more of us wear a mask, 
more often when we're interacting with other people. And if in combination with that, uh, we look out for social distancing, we can have a dramatic decrease or dramatic impact on what actually happens to the spread of this virus. Now, um, the one thing I want to sort of address as well, and they, I think, address it in this situation, but there's also, uh, you know, several other studies that have uh, um, sort of addressed the questions about uh, whether masks can be harmful. So I think there are two things that people think about, the buildup of CO2 uh, as one, and then also uh, they think about bacteria being reintroduced. Now, certainly you want to clean your mask. You want to, you know, if it's disposable, you want to change it out on a regular basis. You want to do all those kinds of things. Um, but what all these studies point to is that um, CO2 does not build up. Number one, because it is so small in terms of particle size, some of it is expelled. Um, when you get to N95 masks, potentially there is some built up initially, but it actually turns out uh, that your body is pretty good about getting rid of that. And so um, particularly in cloth masks, though, and the kinds of masks that people are wearing on a regular basis, including surgical masks, um, there appears to be, for a healthy person, no buildup of carbon dioxide. Um, there also is no reintroduction of bacteria, assuming that you, um, you know, appropriately switch out, clean, whatever you need to do for the mask that you're actually wearing. And so um, it appears from all the evidence that we have that there is a benefit to wearing masks to the individual. And there's a benefit to society as more people actually wear a mask. And there's no downside to individuals who are healthy. Now, that said, um, you do have folks who are uh, uh, compromised in terms of their respiratory system. If you are in that situation, reach out to your doctor. Even if you're healthy, reach out to your doctor and just ask them, get recommendations from them. You know, talk to them about your questions, your fears. And um, ultimately, I think you'll find, um, you know, good advice from the folks who are doctors about whether you should actually wear a mask or not based on your personal situation. But in general, on average, it has no negative impact on people and it has a significant impact on the spread of disease from person to person. And, uh, you know, these are based on findings in laboratories. There are examples of uh, situations where they put masks in between mice who were infected. This is uh, from case studies. There's a pretty famous example now of some hairdressers who had the disease and they spread it within their home where they weren't wearing a mask, but they had uh, hundreds of clients who came through and they were wearing masks and their clients were wearing masks. Not a single one actually got it from those folks. Um, there are population level studies that show uh, those places that implemented masks sooner did better, um, that the higher the compliance is with mask wearing, the lower the spread of the disease is from person to person. And so there's just this body of evidence that suggests, based on everything we know right now, that both masking and social distancing have a significant increase um, – sorry, significant impact by decreasing the probability that people will spread it from person to person. Now, the other thing, which again gets a lot less – um, uh, sort of play in the situation is this idea that um, not only can it reduce the spread, it can also reduce the severity of the disease. So um, one of the things that's been known in uh, animal medicine for a long time is that the amount of virus that one is exposed to, um, the more virus you're exposed to in the initial infection, so the inoculum, uh, the less uh, effective your immune system tends to be and so the more severe your symptoms tend to be. And there have been some studies in the flu that and people that show this and a bunch of other places. And so more recently, what people have found is that there does seem to be a relationship between the severity of the disease and how much of the initial inoculum you get. And so one of the advantage of masking is that um, not only can it prevent the, the particles infected with the virus 
from spreading, but it can reduce the amount of the particles that get spread from person to person. And so by doing that, um, even if you do get it, it can significantly reduce uh, the severity of the disease. And this is a, a body of evidence that is still developing. Obviously, this is a new disease, and so we're continuing to sort of gather information about what's going on. And uh, if you read any of these studies, and we'll we'll have some links to some of these studies uh, in the show notes on our website. Uh, but if you read these studies, um, one of the things you'll see, they always say up front, is that there is still an absence of randomized controlled experiments in a lot of these situations. And again, partially that's because, at least at the population level, it is really difficult um, to imagine and create a scenario where you do have randomized controlled experiments. And even at the individual level, um, the problem you have is you don't want to, you know, ethically put people in a situation where they could end up catching a virus and um, end up, uh, you know, dying as a result of it. So, um, you know, there are still opportunities. There's not a ton of the gold standard evidence. There is a little bit, but there's not a ton. But if we go down to the silver evidence, and even if you were to think about, uh, you know, the bronze being the, the lowest level evidence, there's lots of case studies. There's lots of anecdotal evidence. There's lots of observational studies across a variety of contexts, across individual level and population level that all point in the same direction. Mask and social distancing work. They do not reduce the probability of spread by 100%, but they significantly reduce the probability. And when you combine those two things, you get a healthy, healthy, healthy reduction in the probability of spreading from one person to the other. And this translates at a population level to the more people that wear a mask, the less spread you have in that population. And also there's an emerging set of evidence that suggests that not only do you actually see a reduction in the spread, but for those people who do get the disease, you see a reduction in the severity of the disease. So, Donnie, before we move on, I'd like to bring up a couple of studies that are in uh, that I saw in headlines recently that I was uh, okay. wondering if you could comment on. So right before we started recording, I asked you about these. We didn't go into detail, but you told me you had read them. So the first one was... Uh, Kids in classrooms being three feet apart as opposed to six feet apart, um, that that might be uh, as effective as six feet so we can get more kids in classrooms. And the second was a study about mask mandates and in areas where they did mask mandates that the it was shown to have little or no effect. So maybe the headlines saying the masks weren't as effective as we thought. Uh, I was hoping to get your comments on those. Let's start with the three feet versus six feet in the classroom. Yeah. And again, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. Right. So, um, you know, point number one is we want science to be able to update based on the best available information. And so um, we're going to continue over the course of the next months, years, probably even decades, gather more information about this virus, how it interacts with people and how these different interventions actually work. And so um, we're going to see changes and conversations about what the right decision is around a lot of these things over the coming months. That's point number one. Um, point number two is uh, six feet is better than three feet. Um, so it is uh, inherently better to be further apart because fewer of the particles can travel from one person to the other. However, there is sort of a, a point of diminishing return, meaning if you go from three feet to six feet to nine feet, nine feet is actually better than six feet. But the question is, how many more of those particles are you actually going to uh, eliminate passing from one person to the other? So um, there is diminishing returns in terms of the distance on social distancing, but it does not change the fact that uh, further is better. 
But that leads to point number three. Um, everything in life is a cost benefit, right? And so um, we know that six feet is better than three feet. Um, but is it enough better to, uh, you know, force all these places to incur the cost, both the physical cost of additional building space, but also uh, potentially just the cost of not being able to have all the students in place? Is it worth it? Is the additional reduction in spread worth it for all the costs associated with it in a school setting? And so um, that is the question that's up for debate. And, you know, that's a question where the conversation will continue to happen. Um, it doesn't change the fact that six feet is better than three feet. The question is, is it enough better to pay for all the other um, problems it creates in terms of getting students back into school and the downsides associated uh, with not being able to do that? Right, that makes sense. So so if we found out that three feet were, were good enough, uh, you, you, we'd find that a lot of parents would be happy to get their kids back in school, but we just don't know yet, Correct. Correct. And, um, you know, there's lots of studies that say three feet with masking appears to work pretty well um, in a school setting. And again, you got to remember, this is a very specific mm-hmm. setting where there are uh, controls in place, where there's monitoring in place, where people have to adhere to these masking standards, where people have to adhere to the three feet rule. And so um, it's not a natural setting. It's a very controlled setting for children. Um, and in that specific case, there is some evidence that three feet um, seems to be good. It seems to be uh, sort of uh, effective at stopping the spread of the disease. But again, um, six feet would be better. The question is how much better is six feet and how much um, are we willing to pay for that additional six feet in terms of, you know, students not being able to return to the classroom in some cases or just additional investments we would have to make in, in terms of creating additional space. Right. Okay, time will tell on that one. So yep. what about this uh, this new study that I, I just read was uh, mask mandates and the effectiveness not as, as we thought? Yeah, yeah, this one's a little bit tricky. So I've, I've read some of these headlines and, you know, there are certainly um, some media outlets that are taking this out of context. Um, so I want to be clear, first of all, the study that is being referenced was uh, released in early March. Um, And the study basically looks at uh, the effectiveness of mask mandates across various counties, and it looks at before and after, um, specifically focuses on the 20 days after a mask mandate and simply asks the question, is there a statistically significant effect on the spread of the disease and the death rate in counties where mask mandates are actually implemented? This has nothing to do with the underlying mask itself, right? So this is not asking the question, does masking work? This is asking the question, does the policy choice to implement mask mandates, does it actually um, have an additional effect of decreasing the spread and decreasing the the death rate? And so what they actually found was, um, you know, 20 days out, which again is a relatively short period of time, there's a statistically significant um, decrease in both the spread of the disease and the death rate. And so it actually says that there is some benefit to doing it. Um, The numbers don't look as impressive as one might um, think, but the couple things have to be kept in mind here. Number one, this was over a short period of time. This is only looking at the 20 days after the mandate was the the focus of of what the study is actually doing. Uh, Number two, it is a single study. Um, There are other studies. There was one that was done in Kansas and, you know, there've been a few other ones that have been done that say um, that both uh, death rate and spread of disease goes down significantly, statistically significant, which, all that means, by the way, is it's it's um, the decrease is more than you would expect to see just based on some sort of random happenstance. 
Um, in all those cases, uh, the news has come back that it does actually decrease both the spread and the death rate. And so um, I think you have to be careful uh, how these studies are uh, sort of taken out of context. And in this particular case specifically, A, it is not about whether mask wearing works. And then B, it does show a statistically significant decrease in both the spread of the disease and the death rate. Um, and there are other pieces of evidence and other studies that show um, that there is actually, again, a statistically significant impact of um, creating a mask mandate. And so, um, you know, we got to be careful, got to be careful how people interpret these things and the things they pass around and that we move all of our beliefs and understanding off of a single study. Again, it's the preponderance of the evidence and the preponderance of the evidence still show, and this is not about masking, this is about mask mandate. So above and beyond individuals choosing to wear a mask, does implementing a mask mandate have a an additional benefit? And um, again, it still appears that it does. Uh, it does decrease both of those metrics. Um, the real question is by how much. Um, but I have not seen a single study that says that there was no decrease. It's just a matter of uh, how much that decrease actually is. You know, the mere fact that we um, talk about these things, I think, highlights an important point, right? It's going to continue to evolve, and the thing I cannot right. stress enough is, um, you know, our human tendency is when messages change, when things feel wishy-washy, we tend to discount those things. And um, because this is a new virus, this is a pandemic that we've not experienced before, we're learning as we go. And uh, we have to be open to making recommendations based on the best available evidence. And some of that's going to change from time to time. And um, we always have to have a conversation and be open to a conversation about that. Without that conversation, um, making us feel like we can't have any confidence in the data that's actually being collected because it's actually a signal that we are collecting additional data and we are learning more and we're moving towards uh, a more and more accurate uh, representation of the truth and making decisions which are more well-grounded in the data as it comes along. Yeah, that makes sense. But I, I agree. But the hard part is like this mask mandate study that we just mentioned you could have two different headlines depending on the media outlet you you consume your your news from, right? That's what makes it confusing. Like you could take that study and say, mask mandates are effective, continue to wear your masks, or the, the one that we saw that said masks don't work, right? Yep. It's very difficult for yeah. us, for the consumer to, to read that and, and know and know what to believe when you could you could have that same study have two completely different headlines. Yeah. And again, um, you know, that's where we have to find folks that we can trust to be unbiased and represent the information, the data uh, the best we can. Or we have to understand the bias that exists in different outlets and read multiple outlets so that we get a, a broader perspective. Now, one thing I will say, and, I, and we can add these to the show notes, there are um, there are two folks. Uh, one goes by the name of the Friendly Neighborhood Epidemiologist, and I think the other one is the Friendly Epidemiologist. I think they do a great job of kind of balancing uh, different perspectives and really providing evidence. Um, and they have all kinds of written information about the body of evidence around a lot of these things. And I'd encourage people, um, if you really want to know what's going on in terms of what the data is saying, uh, they're great resources. They're open to additional data as it comes up. They have cataloged historical data as it's been presented. And they do a good job, I think, of synthesizing that and trying to help folks understand um, you know, what kinds of choices and decisions are appropriate given the data that we're actually seeing from, from these various studies.
Rob. I appreciate you joining us here today. Uh, Rob, thanks again for uh, being a part of the podcast and uh, talking through a little bit about the evidence surrounding masks. And I think the the key point that we're we're trying to drive home here is that, um, particularly in the context of a pandemic where there's lots of new information about a brand new virus that's being generated on a regular basis, uh, you have to be careful because um, you can take any one piece of evidence and it might support one particular position or the other. And in the context of something that has become very political, people can take those little pieces of evidence and either use them to support a particular opinion or misrepresent them in order to uh, further a particular narrative. So I think it's incumbent upon us to look at the body of evidence um, as well as the quality of different pieces of evidence and be able to look at the course of all the studies that have been done and all the information that's been accumulated and really focus on what does the preponderance of the evidence suggest in terms of the efficacy of various uh, medical or physical interventions. Well, and how do we go about doing that? I mean, these, what you're talking about, most of us, me included, we don't have the scientific mind to, to read into all the literature, to read these studies. If, if I see, if I see a study uh, that comes out, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to read that, especially in a pandemic when we're all stressed, I'm going to read that and think, oh, this is a good thing, or this is a bad thing. And especially if it supports my view on this, I mean, I'm, I'm naturally going to have a knee jerk reaction to it. Um, um, what, what can what can someone like me do in a, in a situation like this? Yeah, I think um, one of the things we have to do is focus on uh, those things which are trying to tell us the preponderance of the evidence, right? So uh, when you think about the kinds of studies that you pay attention to, if it's a review or a meta-analysis, those are the kinds of things that you actually want to pay really close attention to, as well as, uh, you know, we have lots of experts who are paid on a daily basis to uh, try to interpret and decipher and understand these things. And so, you know, I think in that scenario, you have to just really, um, you have to really be able to uh, think about the source of the information. And I hate to even say this, because I think ultimately we should evaluate ideas uh, based on the merits of the ideas. But there are certainly cases where, you know, myself or someone else doesn't have the training in order to be able to uh, really interpret uh, sometimes what is obtuse language that is, you know, hard to understand and hard to read. And so in those cases, I think we do have to rely on experts uh, and people who have uh, training in a particular area in order to interpret those things for us. You have to be careful and sort of verify where the sources are coming from, right? If it's a uh, scenario where somebody has a particular agenda and you can look historically and they have a particular agenda, I think you just really have to check on the credibility of those sources um, as one thing in the step of trying to figure out where do you listen and where do you not listen to various things that people are actually saying. Yeah, I think you have to do that these days. Like you say, take take something on its own merit is what we should, what we want to do, but more and more these days. And I do it. Like when I see a meme or I see something or I see an article come out, I, I do look at the source now. And I, you know, I, I hate to, to be so cynical, but if something comes out, like a video comes out from the Lincoln Project, I know it's going to be pro-left, anti-conservative. And if I see some some meme, oh, this is what we're saying now, coming from Newsmax. I know that's pro-right, anti-liberal, right? So you get, I, I do look at the source where this is coming from um, because you do have to evaluate that these days because there are agendas. Right. And I think the, um, you know, that's the really hard part is there are highly credentialed people who are saying things which are either inconsistent with the data 
or which dramatically overstate the confidence we should have in certain pieces of data. And so it makes it difficult. I mean, I, I understand it's, it's challenging if it's not an area of expertise that we have as individuals and there are people out there who have, you know, seemingly good credentials who are saying certain things. Um, but I think we have to be very sort of careful of that, right? So one, um, I think we certainly have to admit when we don't have the training or the expertise in order to do the interpretation ourselves. Uh, and then number two, I think we have to look for sources um, that we can basically say don't have a specific agenda, or if they have a specific agenda, we need to understand what kind of bias that might create in terms of the recommendations they're actually talking about. I don't, I, I personally, I don't know enough about science or about these studies to know what's right or what's wrong. So it, I think, I think it's good to seek guidance like that. Like you say, I think, I think too many people right now, they just take uh, the, the side of their group and they say, Oh, that's good enough for me. If my friends are saying that that's good enough without really digging deeper. You know, I think it's a two step process. I don't know enough about this, but I want to learn more. Not, not just, uh, I don't know enough, but Hey, so-and-so says it, that's good enough for me. Well, and it's a really challenging position to be in, right? So the challenging position to be in to say, I don't know enough to be able to decipher all this information, but who do I turn to in order to help me decipher that information? And right. So, that's the hardest part. And again, I, I think it's a matter of finding people that you can discern don't have a particular agenda, A. Uh, and then B, the other thing you can actually do is just read people that you know have agendas, right? So if you can read uh, you know, sources on one side of an issue and sources on another side of an issue and somebody in between, um, at least that gives you a breadth of opinions and perspectives in which you can start to draw inferences from. And so um, that is another strategy in terms of searching for information. Because again, um, because of motivated reasoning, we tend to only search for information in places that we um, believe will provide information that supports the beliefs we already have, right? And so, you right. know, lots of people go to Fox News because they know Fox News is going to say things they like. Um, lots of people go to MSNBC because they know that MSNBC is going to say things that they like. Um, you know, one of the things that we can do is sort of just enlarge our horizons to um, take into account information from a lot of different sources that, you know, have the entire spectrum of belief systems and then uh, try to look at those things in a sober, sober way to try to weigh out which ones seem to have uh, better or worse uh, evidence and arguments about what the outcome or um, intervention actually is doing. So. But in this case, we are um, in a situation where there is a body of evidence, the majority of which, the preponderance of which suggests that social distancing and masking actually work, uh, that neither one is 100% effective, uh, that by combining interventions which are not 100% effective, you get the benefit, the multiplicative benefit of both. So they reduce your probability and combine the reduction in probabilities even greater, uh, that as a society, the more we wear a mask and the more we social distance, the more this will be effective at stopping sort of population spread of the virus. And so um, there's some pretty compelling evidence, but there are still legitimate fears, right? There are legitimate fears people have, particularly about their freedoms um, and the government and still suspicion about changing, you know, messaging around what masks do, what masks don't do. And so next week when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about pulling all this together and just really having a, a conversation about making choices and decisions when we have various uh, concerns that we're trying to weigh out and, and various fears and how how we can maybe think about balancing some of those things, or at least how we think about balancing some of those things. So we look forward to that conversation. And uh, in between, we hope you have an amazing week. 
stay happy and stay healthy. And uh, if you have any questions or if you have anything you want us to talk about, or if you want to be on the show, or if you have an idea, reach out to us at animethics at gmail.com. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you again soon. It's like food for your ears.